Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Hi, everyone. Your host, Jeff Malik here, with a quick note on this pod being a little different format. Uh, we co-hosted a virtual investment conference a few weeks ago focused on the opportunities in China, with the conference participants able to view different interviews with various China and Asia-focused hedge fund managers. There was a lot of super interesting stuff in those interviews, but we didn't know if you wanted six new pods dropped immediately, all focused on China, and putting them all together was way too long for a single pod. So instead, we're doing a bit of a mashup on the pod today where we grab parts of each manager interview that we did and put them all in this pod. So up next are the best pieces of talks with Stephen Zhao, partner at Shanghai Mingxi, Desmond Hao, head of fixed income at Gauteng, Michelle Lung, CEO of Zingtai, Allison Zhao from AP Capital Management, and Brent Belote, the head of Kaler Capital. Enjoy. Today, we're joined by Stephen Zhao of Shanghai Mingxi Investment Management, a quantitative hedge fund based out of China. Uh, and the Mingxi, Mingxi team focuses specifically on Chinese A shares and the benefit that uh, that brings to their strategy. And Stephen and his team have joined us for some of our uh, events here in Chicago in the past. Uh, and our team at RCM has joined them in China a few times. So great to see you again, Stephen. Yeah, great to see you as well. Tell us a little bit about your personal background. How did you end up uh, ending up at Mingxi? Okay. Um, Mingxi was founded by two uh, academics, basically, Professor Robert Stamba and Professor Yuan, and they both from Wartan, and they both teaching there, and Professor Yuan was a PhD from Wartan as well. And actually, I'm a, I have a common friend, a college friend with uh, Professor Yuan. We, we, we were known each other during that time, and uh, after graduation, I was doing commodities, and for like more than 10 years. And in 2009, Professor Yuan, when he decided not to teach anymore in the US, and he, he had a talk with uh, Professor Robert Stamford, he decided to come, come to China and they started the pawn shop. And they, uh, he sort of talked to me and uh, I said, fine, it's, uh, it's, uh, I have no idea at that time, but I, I generally think it's, it, it should not be a bad idea. So uh, that's how we started. And I, uh, I started with Mings in 2010, but softly. I probably spent maybe 50% of the time. And uh, then I fully joined Mings in 2015. I spent 100% time. And uh, I'm basically now in charge of all the operations and, uh, and, and the finance, as well as part of the marketing. So let's dig into the strategy a little bit. So you sure. mentioned a few pieces in the beginning, but just give us the, the overall 30,000 foot, we call it an elevator pitch here in the US, but give us the quick, elevator pitch on the main strategy okay um as i said uh we are now offering actually four different strategies and the three i already mentioned which is like a, a intraday strategy 
uh, basically we're predicting uh, three minutes up to four hours return of the stock. And uh, so far we are carrying a shop around three. And also we are doing a uh, three to five day strategy. Uh, by the name, you can see our turnover rate is around 20 to 30% a day. And that carries a similar shop. And, uh, and also we're doing 20 day strategy. And that's of a lower shop, but it's still 1.8. And uh, it's been running for like last five years. Um, now we're having- Like long short strategies? Long oh, short- uh, uh, It's like this, it's not really a long short. In China, the shorting infantry is just not available. And uh, so basically what we do is, we have a three strategy, but the application of these three strategies always have two. One is we call the market neutral. Like you said, we're doing long and short. But yeah. in shorting, because of the lack of shorting infantry. So what we do is we short in the index future, or sometimes we just using the, in the swap, index swap, and rather than shorting single names. So in China, there's no long-term per se, uh, long short per se, but only long versus shorting index futures. And yeah. this is what we do for onshore. And the, another application is the same strategy, is like we call it index enhancement. It's 100% purely long. Basically, the, the, the target is to outperform the index. Basically, we want to generate the alpha. And as, as, as always, we're doing it for long side only because we just, we just can't short single names in China. It's, it's, it's practically not, not, not practical in China. And these are the two applications. But in offshore, we're also doing a combination of intraday and three to five days because we're doing the, the strategy we call Optima. So basically, it's optimized a signal of of three to five days and the intradays. So basically we're offering two, oh, sorry, offering four strategies. And so the, to put it in US terms, you know, the classic long short equity market neutral hedge fund might go long Microsoft and short IBM and capture. Yeah, no, that's not what we do, yeah. You would go long Microsoft and short the S&P. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But that was not the case for our offshore partners because we have, we have been doing our SMA since last year and we launched our fund this March. Before that, the master fund, we do around 30 to 40% on shorting long short, basically because you know, for the international PBs, they do have a fairly okay uh, shorting inventory availabilities. So uh, available. So for us, we are able to have around 30 to 40% uh, on, on shorting single names. So that, that you can say it's like a, like a, like a 40% long short. And another forty percent is like a long and versus invest features. Got it. And then the names you're picking long or short is all driven by AI. Yeah. Uh, yes. And uh, for our high shop strategy, basically we are using uh, machine learning and deep learning algorithms to combine those factors together. It's like it's like basically uh, if I want to say I what kind of people I like. I need to give some factors, like I want uh, like a tall or, or I want like uh, to be, uh, the eyes is, is, is big or blah, blah, blah. I need to give factors. But if I'm giving only 10 factors, we used to do linear combinations, giving like a 10% weight or 20% weight on certain factors, then we have a score. Then we see uh, which one got a high score and that, that would be the one. But now, um, since the 2016, we are adopting this like machine learning and deep learning algorithms. It enables us to uh, combine a much larger number of uh, factors. Actually, it makes it more accurate. 
actually now if I'm describing a people, I can say, okay, I, I like to, the hair to be how long? And I wanted the, the, the angle of the chain and, uh, and I can give that 10,000 factors, that, which the old so linear. How right. many factors are going into the model? Uh, it depends, basically. I will say on average, one, one of the signal would maybe carry around 500 up to 3,000. Sometimes wow. even go higher, uh, even 5,000. Then we combine those signals together. And, uh, and of course, by using nonlinear AI combinations. And the AI will just combine them in a nonlinear way, at which we don't understand. So far, it's black box. But, uh, but the output is, uh, is, uh, is quite robust. And so the uh, and so it's black box. So it's just assigning a score, or it's saying these are the top ten stocks you want to be in, and these are the bottom okay. ten stocks. Okay. Once we uh, let's talk a little bit about our strategy development. Basically, we have uh, six teams researching those so-called factors. Basically, like like the, the, the unique features of the share market, right? And uh, each team may 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 this team may be more focused on finance, so there will be more intuition intuitions. They will handwritten those factors. That team may be more into AI. They're basically using, using machine learning itself to, to create factors. Then we have a bank. And then we have a group called, we have AI teams. They will just combine four of those, each and every teams, combine four of them of those their factors into one signal. Once uh, those, those signals we can call this as, those single signal is, itself is tradable. So just say we have a six, different signals from six teams. Then our, I, our IC then will decide how to combine them. And they will combine them in a linear way and giving the weight actually. And then we make a mass signals. Mass signal will basically, basically give a score by the, by the ranking of the returns of the, of the shares. Like say the Y, if we want the Y to be say, uh, you want, I want to outperform uh, SMP uh, for China access, and then the, the machine, the machine will basically pick the possibility of the, of the best return of the stocks compared to SMP for China access. And uh, the number one is Maotai, for example. Number two is Ping An, and then up to like a down to like a number two thousand, number number three thousand. Then it comes to our like uh, like uh, optimizer on this like uh, risk because we want to control the volatilities. So after optimizations, then we'll have a basket of the shares. So the, the EMS then will, the OMS will be sending those orders to the EMS, and the EMS will execute. And so can you give a couple simplistic examples of some of the factors? Um, let's say offer loss. Let's say some of the factors people might understand better is like order flaws. If you see the, the active buying is towards one direction, and then you will see uh, if the price also is moving up in the last three days, that you will see you are, you are, you are trying to make a straight days like a, like a, like a price and volume factors. If the order, if the, if the buying order is increasing on daily and the price is all moving up, you, you, you might end up saying, okay, the fourth day, you're more likely to getting a, a positive day for the fourth day. And, uh, and this you can call a feature. Basically, this is like a by some of the, of the, of the intuitions written by human. Also, there's some of the features which you can't understand. Because it's interrelated, a lot of if in there. The computer will say if the daily volatility of certain share is uh, is so much, and the, the 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 volume is decreasing and the pace of like ten percent every day, and if the price is uh, going up, then what? 
and it's more complicated. And the computer will give you a score, say, okay, factor A, probably I will give you like a square. Factor A will be, will be, will be square. And uh, factor B may be multiplied by factor C, and uh, it will become really complicated. So it's, it's really hard to explain. But a lot of people would assume factors means like market cap and right a bunch of these balance sheet factors or things like that. So uh, we don't use that sort of data that much that we call fundamental or accounting variables. Uh, yeah. we, we're using our less than 10% in our model. We're using 70% on price volume because in the high turnover rate strategy, those fundamental data, it doesn't, it doesn't work that much. But yes, right. of course, in the low turnover strategy with 20 days, we're using almost 30% of the account, accounting variable. And so you mentioned that the alpha perhaps only being around for a few years. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Is that as the Chinese, China A shares market evolves and becomes more, you know, as more professionals get in there, you think it'll be uh, kind of these ARB opportunities will fade away? Uh, exactly. Uh, definitely, I will say, because look at this. If we're talking about all performing the, if we're talking about like a 50 or 80 percent alpha, like a last forever, nobody will believe that, basically. Yeah. That's just crazy. And, and, uh, and, uh, of course, it depends on a few things. Now, so far, we're able to maintain like three plus shot, and we're talking about with 8% volatilities. We're talking about we can realize maybe a outperformance of like uh, up to 30, 50% because we need to outperform the, 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 the cost of the, of the hedging tools, and uh, which the shop might get polluted. And, um, but, uh, but uh, I mean, in the long run, definitely it's towards the decay for sure. But uh, because of the structure in China is so unique, like two years ago, the, the participation rate of retail sector is around 86%, but last year was 85 And this year we don't have the data yet, but I, I assume, that according to our understanding from the exchange as well as some of the PBs, onshore PBs, it'd be more or less the same. So the retail asset doesn't decrease. So that's basically we gas. We can only gas. That's the soil, and uh, of our offer, and uh, it will it will just remain for some time, of course. And I don't think it will last forever. As I said, I don't I don't believe it will last forever. But yeah, I, I think it will be. It will take some time. It will take some time. Plus, the other way is our R and D is keep going, going on, and uh, we are actually um, trying to catch up. To, to so-called the international, like, okay, give an example, like I said about Two Sigma, we're trying to catch up all, from all the angles. And we do talk to a lot of people, and we do a lot of recruiting as well. And, uh, and we have uh, people working for us from all the, like, those big firms. And uh, they, they were working with other big firms. Now there are a lot of people joining us. And uh, we're trying to uh, um, um, develop uh, to, uh, deliver to more strategies as well as we're trying to improve into uh, models, algorithms, like a trading impact and uh, our internal system as well. So uh, there's a lot of room to improve as well. I think that will, that will I mean, fight against the decay. So, so the, yeah. I believe one day the alpha will be stabilized at a, we call the reasonable levels, not really giving people a yield of like 15, 20 or 30 percent a year. That's just uh, unreal. Right. But that was what, what's happening in the last couple of years. And so the trigger 
for your guys' assessment of the opportunity lowering will be that retail participation rate? Like if that falls to I, I will personally assume that, yes. I will personally assume that. And if the more institutionalized, for example, if the participation rate of the quantum maybe it's less than around 10%, uh, of course last year, some of some particular time may be higher, but on average it's like 10%. If in Chinese market, if we are talking about like, okay, 60 or 70% trading is from quant, then I think the offer opportunity will be definitely much less. Let's wrap up. We like to ask all the guests a couple of favorites. So uh, do you have a favorite investing book? I, I want to be very frank with you. I don't read investment books. <laughs> <laughs> How about a, a non-investment book? Oh, okay. I have a, if you're talking about novel, uh, I, I like one called a Siege, The Siege. It's basically by a Chinese famous writers. It's just talking about like a, a people siege a city, how, how, how much people from outside want to get in and how much the people was inside want to get out. I, I think that's interesting and confident about human nature. It's always coming. And <laughs> yeah, I can call that my favorite book. You have watched the Star Wars movies ever? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think I watched every one of them. Nice. So, favorite Star Wars character? Ah, uh, I don't remember exactly. I think uh, those people or creature you call from Naboo, uh, with those from, like uh, dripping air. Uh, the, the Gungans. Gungans. Oh, Gungans. Okay. Uh, I forgot his name. Maybe one of the characters called Jar Jar. Yeah, Jar Jar Binks. Also, the name of one of a PB manager. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Stephen. This has been Thank fun. you very much. And we'll hope to see you once the uh, pandemic unravels here, either in Chicago or in Shanghai. Sure. Can't wait. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we're joined by Desmond Howe, head of fixed income for Gaocheng, a top-tier asset management firm with an extensive domestic and overseas uh, experience. Desmond has over 23 years of experience in the investment management space and fixed income and is with us virtually from Hong Kong. So Desmond, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff, for having me here. So let's get into the strategy a little bit. So tell me about your strategy that you run of how it works. Oh, okay. What's the general idea behind it? Yeah. So, um, so the three funds that I run, um, maybe I'll just... Uh, uh, you know, briefly talk about the, the two other funds. Uh, the first is yeah. the uh, the, uh, the Penguin Asian High Yield Fund. That uh, is a is a mutual fund that's uh, uh, listed in Ireland. It's a users fund. Uh, uh, it's uh, the strategy we employ a barbell strategy uh, to uh, to balance the income and capital gains. Uh, 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 approach to our total return. Um, that one, I, I think because uh, uh, we are pretty cautious about the credit cycle over here. In fact, uh, I was among the first proponent that we are already in the, we were already in the, uh, in the, in the bear cycle since the uh, fourth quarter of 2017. Uh, you know, a barometer for our, for, for, the, for our credit cycle is uh, uh, spreads and default rates. So you know, in, uh, at that time, probably we seen the best, uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know the, the spreads were the tightest, and then um, you know default rates were the lowest. Uh, 
and 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 the, ending this pandemic, uh, which uh, brought about the global recession, is actually uh, hastening the, uh, the default rates uh, uh, to to go to maybe to the peak at around uh, you know the, the typical eleven to thirteen percent. Uh, but uh, but I think this round probably you know we, we because of the extent of the uh, impact you know it's, it's not just on a few industries but many many businesses will be uh, will be suffering. Uh, it, I think the 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 default rate could go as high as twenty percent uh, globally. So we are actually cautious into this, uh, but we launched uh, we launched this uh, uh, Asian high yield fund. Uh, on the pretext of uh, an observation that uh, we made last year, uh, we saw there's a rich for yield, uh, given that the global rates are, you know, going to have have gone to zero. Like the developed markets, uh, you know, especially now that even U.S. rates are are zero, and now there's a, a rich for yield theme out there, and I think the the high yield would suit really well. In this uh, environment, there's a you know lack of uh, lack of uh, yield, uh, so we launched it. Uh, and uh, but uh, at the same time, we are cautious uh, about the default rate. So the strategy is a barbell, as I said. Uh, you know, a big uh, portion of it will go to quality high yield, uh, high quality high yield, uh, where we go for the income. And and there are also some uh, you know uh, babies thrown out of the bath water. So there will be capital gains opportunities selectively. We we'll, we'll go for. Uh, some of the distress, small distress names, uh, and uh, to get capital gains. So this strategy is a balanced uh, a strategy between income and capital gain. Now the second what, strategy. What, what type of yield are you are trying to get there for high yield for the investors? Yeah. So so actually, uh, Asia is uh, is in a sweet spot, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, as of today. Uh, High yield average yield is uh, is like eight point nine percent according to Barclays, and compare this with like the um, the U.S. high yield, which is six point three percent, and uh, and Europe five point six percent. So that I mean, definitely you know, uh, Asian high yield looks really attractive, right? Vis a vis the the counterparts, right? Uh, so for 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 this portfolio, you know, we we, we try to. Also, uh, try to go closer to uh, uh, this uh, uh, Barclays or J.P. Morgan's benchmark of, of uh, right now is uh, uh, eight to nine percent. Uh, this is the yield, but uh, I think uh, uh, carry is only one part of the game. The other part, we are looking for alpha, uh, playing for spread uh, compression uh, in some of the uh, uh, oversold credits. And then, what countries are we talking? So, this is all of Asia or China specific. Which which countries? Well, it's uh, you know we 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 do a portfolio construction based on what's uh, you know available in the universe. You know, I think the the two good benchmarks were uh, have been uh, J P Morgan, Jackie, and then uh, the the Barclays, uh, uh, the Bloomberg Barclays, uh, high, uh, Asia High in, in DCs, right? So the that spans uh, more than ten countries. You know, uh, the, the bigger Part of the indices are China. I think fifty percent uh, or more are, are from China. So China is a very important part of our investment uh, era, uh, portfolio. And the the second largest will be probably uh, in Indonesia, and and third will be India. These are the three main focuses for Asian high yield. 
Great. So then let's get into the, uh, so that's the penguin high yield or that's. Yeah, it's a penguin high yield, uh, Asian high yield fund. Uh, and and number, uh, two? number two uh, is the short, uh, uh, actually Greater China, uh, short dated uh, high yield fund, which we launched uh, last September. That one actually is, is pure, uh, pure carry. So what we do is, uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, talking to uh, investors uh, who says who wants to have the best of both for high income and low vol. You know, <laughs> as I said, there's yeah, no free lunch, but we want. actually, yeah, everybody wants that, right? But actually, we did some back testing. I mean, we were thinking about, you know, maybe going into a, a portfolio of a short dated, uh, you know, uh, maybe two years uh, duration type of, uh, uh, you know, uh, sector focus. Uh, 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 portfolio. Uh, we back tested the portfolio during the fourth quarter 2018 sell off. You know, uh, re re retracements is just barely 4% with a 9% carry. So, sharp ratio is pretty, pretty, pretty good. And in fact, uh, this uh, during this March sell off, uh, you know, this portfolio averaging like single B, you know, actually sold off just barely 8% compared to some of the triple Bs. Uh, out there that sold down like 15%. So I think it outperformed and it was designed to do it for that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, negating uh, a market risk from the short uh, dated nature of the portfolio. But at the same time, we try, we try to uh, go for some of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, safer sectors in the high yield. You know, for our, our favorite is actually the Chinese property sector. So a good 70% of our allocation is to the Chinese property. Uh, that gives us this uh, carry about nine percent, nine to ten percent, and that carries based on the rate differential between what the U.S. and China, or you're saying uh, no, just, it's just uh, absolute uh, yield, right? It's a coupon. Uh, you know, the these days, uh, you know, the the and that the most attractive uh, proposition I think out there for high yield is is definitely Chinese property. And I can talk about that later. Uh, I guess you have some questions, but I, I can say I can tell you to, today that uh, you know that's the uh, that has been my favorite sector, uh, you know, over the last fourteen years uh, of issuance history. So the first uh, U.S. dollar property bonds was issued in 2000, 2006, and up to today um, there are like uh, you know uh, thousands of uh, issues already. But uh, lo and behold, there are only like two cases of. Uh, uh, default incidences. Uh, and what does that look very... like? Is it like a U.S. REIT or something? So you're getting rents. Is it commercial? Is it what? What's the backbone of the property? So it's uh, the bonds are issued by uh, Chinese developers, uh, uh, but uh, using an offshore entity. So they set up an SPV in uh, uh, outside of China. Uh, yeah. So in theory, they are you know they. they the rating agencies may, may have uh, been rating them as senior, but in theory, they are actually subordinated, right? Uh, because uh, they are further away from the assets. Uh, that's why uh, the market has been uh, demanding a premium, uh, risk premium over uh, 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 over their rating. So uh, right now, single B property companies are about uh, average about nine handle, uh, and that's like almost uh, 200 basis point uh, of uh, 
uh, cheap to any uh, of of this uh, of these rating peers, and and I guess the, the uh, a good reason is that uh, of the nature of this uh, SPV, and 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 and, and also the uh, uh, why this uh, sector has been cheap uh, is because of supply. So the past uh, uh, five to seven years, uh, a lot of supply has been coming out from this uh, sector. But you know, back to my and point, that, right? Just but, quickly, but is my it, point is the government limiting supply, so then they have to go offshore to get the funding they need. Yeah, that, you, you're, you're right on that because uh, the government right now, you know, uh, actually, especially after the Hong Kong incidents, uh, recognized this, you know, that uh, price stability is really paramount, right? Uh, to to keep. Uh, 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 People happy, uh, right, yeah. and, uh, and, yeah. and 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 uh, avoid social tensions, right. So uh, for that, you know, the uh, the government would uh, uh, rather not uh, just uh, developers uh, trying to beat up land prices, and and hence would uh, escalate, uh, you know, uh, price appreciation of the uh, of the of the uh, units they're selling. So I think the the control. Uh, uh, they control the land prices uh, by 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 uh, suppressing uh, 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 developers uh, from issuing bonds onshore. But uh, so so uh, some developers uh, try to get around it by issuing offshore offshore bonds as well, uh, which actually uh, you know two years ago the uh, NDRC uh, recognized uh, this loophole and uh, actually. Uh, a kind of uh, uh, slam on the doors uh, 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 have have been requiring this uh, the developers to uh, to uh, get approvals from them before they can issue. So last year, uh, last actually last uh, last July, they came up with a, a new rule saying that uh, only only uh, uh, if the developers shows that they are using the, the the use of proceeds from offshore issuance. Uh, are for refinancing. Otherwise, they can't do offshore issuance. So I expect supply uh, to to be curtailed uh, uh, going forward uh, because of this uh, uh, new uh, NDRC uh, uh, law about uh, about the offshore issuance. And, so and that's why I actually the, the capital would, gains play as well as an income play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of capital gains play because. Again, I, I was trying to tell you that last 14 years, there are only two default incidences, uh, which is very low by any standards globally, right? Uh, you know, in any sectors, right? To two out of thousands is in, in 14 years, this is like, you know, oh, the, the pricing of, uh, you know, 9%, you know, 9% yield actually uh, implied uh, cumulative default rate of, uh, you know, about uh, uh, 35 to 40%, uh, which is, yeah really high right because the actual default rate is so low so you know i think uh, this sector is well suited for long-term investment i like it and so number three let's go on fund number three number three is the one that i am the most uh, excited about uh this is my flagship fund uh we call it uh uh gauteng emerging market emerging market uh, long short uh fixed income alpha it's a mouthful it was yeah. deliberate because I want to be succinct about what I want to do. 
so this the scope of investment is uh, is wide, right? It's a global emerging market, uh, which I have been uh, investing over over my my 20, 20 over years of uh, my career. Um, and so and it's, uh, run through those countries real quick. So that's basically everything that's not the G ten. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh it's uh, it's really uh you know we. we is, is wide breadth uh, uh, spans eighty countries and uh, tens of thousands of issuers. Uh, but we can actually uh, break it down into three uh, regions. Uh, first, Asia. Asia would represent a third of the universe, and then Latin America uh, would be another third, and the, and the, uh, and the last third is a, uh, is a, is a combination of Eastern Europe and Africa. Uh, and Middle East. So uh, these are the we can break it down in the three uh, these three regions. And in Asia, uh, you know, uh, obviously China is a big uh, uh, component, uh, and and followed by Indonesia. And uh, um, in uh, in uh, Eastern Europe, it's uh, Turkey and Russia. Uh, yeah. Africa, you know. Uh, we have uh, also some uh, South Africa is a big uh, component and uh, some uh, maybe uh, peripherals like uh, Egypt uh, and in Latin America for, for sure it's Brazil and Mexico. Yeah, these are the okay, two. So it's not, and, uh, but it's not frontier markets of like Nigeria or some super, oh, super new country. Yeah. So, so the good thing about this, uh, this asset class, uh, it's uh, you know, there's a lot of inefficiencies that we can exploit. So that includes some of the frontier markets, although they are a small component. You know, they are probably like a couple of percent uh, of the of the uh, of the uh, uh, indices. Uh, but these are the ones that nobody uh, spend enough time to look at uh, these credits and 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 actually can. Uh, uh, have sometimes have some uh, uh, super normal profits if we can uh, get the trade right. So Nigeria, as you mentioned, is uh, is one of them. Uh, you know, we also have uh, like for example Argentina. It's you know it's uh, the perennial defaulter. Right. <laughs> I, I we, think we, that was I on a podcast I did the other day. I think they're up to nine times in the past hundred years or something. Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't live long enough for, to see the nine times, but in my, my personal career already, uh, you know, three times, and, and I think this is the fourth. Uh, and if you have invested $100 uh, 20 years ago in, uh, in this country, right now it's probably worth seven, seven cents. Wow. Because no, uh, of the, uh, the restructuring, uh, the deep haircuts uh, that... Uh, that that the the restrict the restructuring uh, uh, entailed, uh, and uh, and now it's well it's a it's a you know it was uh, I remember a couple of years ago when they issued a century bond I I, I was like you know almost yeah. fell off the chair <laughs> I almost <laughs> fell off the chair so you know what it shows one thing uh, there are new investors right always new investors coming into the market and they didn't see they didn't, they, they didn't have the chance to see. Uh, or experience uh, what uh, Argentina went through, and uh, second thing uh, maybe that market maybe uh, market is forgetful, right? So you know there's pressure for de de deploy cash, and uh, you know some some uh, yields may be attractive enough to, uh, for investors to come in at, at that at the spur of the moment. Back to the strategy. So 
So long global short. emerging market long short fixed income alpha. <laughs> yeah. So again, the the uh, it's a fixed income strategy, uh, but it's a hedge fund. So long short, uh, you know. Uh, I see myself as a good uh, beta manager because over the 24 years of uh, investment, I made money on the, over the 23 years. And, uh, but importantly is, uh, you know, this strategy itself, uh, uh, only 30% is coming from beta, uh, but you know, a good 70% is coming from alpha. So I, I see myself as a better alpha manager, you know, having a, uh, 24 years investing in this space, uh, be able, able to uh, extract, uh, you know, alpha consistently, uh, you know, uh, for, for, from, from the emerging market. And as I said, the emerging market, you know, uh, there's a lot of inefficiency I can exploit, you know, because the, uh, while the rating trajectory as a whole is, uh, is up, has, 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 uh, has been, uh, has been, uh, going upward, right? Because I, I remember when I, and when I was at uh, PGIM, right, and uh, PGIM, um, the the index average rating was like maybe uh, low double B or something like that, and now it's already like uh, uh, triple B, so investment grade. Um, so the, as as a whole, the emerging market is uh, is converging uh, uh, converging to the developed world, right? Uh, but uh, if you look at uh, uh, intra regions. The trajectory may be may may be very different, right? So uh, Latin America could be uh, uh, on a downward trajectory, while Asia is on an upward trajectory, and we can exploit uh, the the difference uh, of 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 these two regions uh, by taking uh, either the long or short sides of the trade. So that's uh, so one so advantage of of this strategy. And you're, but you're still doing single names within those countries, or you're doing sovereign debt. Yeah. So the uh, the you know the uh, the strategy is uh, pretty wide, widely encompassing. Uh, you know, uh, meaning that I can uh, invest in sovereigns, I can invest in banks, I can invest in corporates, uh, and 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 in fact. Uh, you know, if you look at the universe, uh, it's about three trillion US dollar in value. Uh, uh, a billion is in sovereigns, and a billion is in quasi sovereigns, and a billion is corporate. Right. So, there, there really have is a is, is a big and uh, is a big and deep uh, a market that uh, we can exploit. Yeah. And how do you get the uh, short exposure? Is that via credit default yeah. spots? Or how are you getting the short? Yeah. So uh, I I differentiate my shorts. Uh, I, I break it down into two types. Right? One is alpha short and one is beta short. As I as I mentioned earlier, I try to uh, you know uh, to get seventy percent of my total return from alpha. That's my mainstay of the strategy. And alpha shorts, what we do is uh, we uh, we are playing for the uh, spread decompression play. Uh, we, we have spread the compression playing. We, we think that uh, a certain credit, you know, is either on a, a downward uh, rating trajectory. So we play for credit migration, play for downgrade, or we play for default because we see this company may be uh, maybe fraudulent, or you know, uh, or given the financial condition is bad, you know, they they, they are not 
able to uh, raise capital uh, to refinance. So we, we will short those uh, credits by borrowing bonds. So we borrow uh, in, the, in the repo market. So we do a reverse repo on, on, the, on, on the bonds and we short, we'll short the bonds. So I think there are not many people out there who have the guts to short bonds even at you know like 12% type of yield because you know shorting bonds uh, uh, you know is expensive uh, maybe expensive uh, two, there are two costs uh, associated with shorting right one is uh, the coupon you know the the coupon is not paid by the the, the issuer but it's going to be paid by me right when i uh, when i when i short the bonds and and the other part is the borrower cost so we have to borrow the cost the bonds to 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 short the bonds and uh, you know and and if it's at twelve percent borrowing cost and uh, I mean uh, plus the uh, uh, coupon that means uh, you know it's, I I will lose one percent a month type of uh, uh, you know it's a, it's a it's a I'm a pay, I'm a payer uh, because in, in so many you must have a lot of funds lining up to loan the loan the bonds to you right. Yeah. So a good thing about uh, about uh, you know uh, these days uh, uh, the the re repo market is uh, uh, is uh, is more efficient than than in the past, especially the past uh, five years where we saw Chinese uh, Chinese money going after Chinese bonds, and uh, they are using uh, uh, the repo facility to get leverage. That means the you know sourcing bonds now is has become much easier for me. In the past, uh, a lot of bonds are uh, are being uh, you know bought and kept with uh, you know they, the, there's no need to repo out the bonds. So I I, uh, I I would have uh, some difficulties in finding uh, borrows. But now I think it's really uh, widely available, which means and that so this strategy actually uh, you know makes it, book, makes it more operational. The book isn't neutral. It's not equally long and short, is what you're saying with the alpha and beta portions. So you yeah. Might... So I, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yes, uh, you know, I, I, as I said, uh, I think I'm a good beta manager. I, rather, the you know, my my win rates has been uh, about seventy percent uh, out of ten months. I, I made money seven times uh, because I I got I get the direction right, uh, whether it's long or short. So uh, you know, beta would uh, represent thirty percent of my total return. Uh, so, so, but you know, because I have the, the latitude to play beta, uh, uh, but I don't really bank on my beta for total return. Uh, I could this this strategy is not market neutral, meaning it's not like one for one. It's not. Yeah. Uh, so in, uh, I can dial up risk when I like. You know, uh, I, if I like the market, you know, if the market is uh, especially, I think. Uh, recognizing which part of the credit cycle we are in is very important. It's paramount. Uh, that that affects my uh, first my investment uh, decision whether to go uh, into uh, into the year, into the month, uh, you know, whether to go long or short. Right. So uh, if I recognize we are already in the bear cycle, means means that I cannot be too uh, you know positive beta. Uh, 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 my, my beta cannot be too too positively high, uh, as 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 in this year. Uh, actually, you know, I, I I set a risk budget that's much lower than my strategic risk budget because I've been cautious about uh, uh, taking long risks. So uh, there are months. 
you know, the, the, the good, the beauty about this strategy is SO is, uh, uh, I can tactically uh, adjust my risk budget uh, according to uh, the sentiments of the market. So uh, a month where we think that there's a pent up demand for uh, uh, credit risk, you know, I would be more, uh, I'll allocate more, more risk budget into it and go long. And if, you know, like for example, uh, in, in, in February this year, I sense that the market is too complacent about the uh, the, pand uh, the possibility of a pandemic. Uh, right now, you know, you think that pandemic is really thrown around at the world. But as early as uh, January, uh, we, we were already cautious about this uh, pandemic, meaning it's going to affect uh, the rest of the world. So we we were we, we uh, doubt back uh, our risk uh, uh, from you know uh, net positive in January to uh, to net. Neg uh, negative in, in February. So we are actually very uh, tactical in, in our risk budgeting, which, you know, uh, as I said, uh, would give a pretty uh, uh, good uh, win rates for, for investor. I like it. And then that's all discretionarily based or is there systematic overlays that are informing you on when to tilt or dial back one way or the other? Yeah. So the risk budgeting is the first step of my investment process, right? And I... Uh, you know, I look at, uh, I scan the world, right? Uh, uh, whether it's, uh, it's equity market, uh, rates market, vaults market, I, I scan the world uh, and, also, and, and also different parts of the world as well, you know, whether it's Asia or, or US or Europe. And, uh, you know, there the, are the factors that I look at uh, that may decide uh, on, on how I set the budget. Right. Uh, for example, VIX is a is a good uh, uh, indicator for me uh, about risk taking. Uh, and VIX, you gotta be a bit more contrarian. So when uh, volatility is low, it, you you wanna be um, more cautious and because of complacency. And when when volatilities are high, and then you, you need to be, uh, have an expectation of uh, whether this. Uh, uh, volatility is going to be higher or maybe we have hit the peak and that's where you can decide you know, that's time to actually go long. So I think VIX is a, has been a good indicator for me. And, and the other uh, good indicator has, has been rates, as I mentioned, uh, you know, global rates, uh, you know, negative rates, uh, favors, uh, rich for yield trades. So that, uh, you know, when I see negative rates, uh, 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 well, one, th one thing I'll, I'll be more cautious about uh, uh, about the uh, the the, uh, the risk environment, but uh, actually uh, on the on the medium to longer term, actually has been a, a, a strong indicator that uh, investors wants to uh, to take on more risk. All right, well, Desmond, this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll make sure to visit next time we're in Hong Kong, or if you get over to uh, Chicago at all. I'll try. It's, you know, uh, you know. Actually, I love. Uh, I spent five years in the states, right? I, actually, Chicago is one of my favorite cities. The architecture is uh, wonderful, and not forgetting jazz. I love jazz. Yeah, we agree. And then we ask all our guests. I'm not sure if you're a Star Wars fan. Have you seen the Star Wars movies? Of course, uh, but I'm not really a, a fan. But my favorite character must be uh, Yoda. Yoda. Uh, there I, we like, go. I like his. I, I like. Yeah, I like his quote. Uh, uh, do or do not, there is no try. Yes, yes. Same for investment. You don't try, yeah. you just yeah. have to do it. Yeah. Perfect for an investment manager, right? Just get it done. <laughs>
for this session, we have Michelle Lung, founder and CEO of Zingtai Capital Management. Michelle's extensive background includes Ivy League schooling, regular contributions to Bloomberg and CNBC, and stints at big investment firms around the globe. So thanks so much, Michelle, for joining us today. I'm born and raised Hong Kong. Okay, great. And I uh, finished high school here and did my first year of university in China, in Peking University, Beida. Uh, I then completed my bachelor's at the London School of Economics. And uh, my first work experience was actually at the United Nations for three years, so I did something completely different. And uh, after three years at the United Nations, I, I went to Harvard Business School and completed my MBA, um, class of 96 from HBS. And after that, I joined Goldman Sachs, and I was in Goldman Sachs in investment banking for a number of years um, before I started my uh, operating in private equity and investing career. So I started life um, as a COO of a listed Chinese consumer business. Um, it's the, the, the company is under the Hutchinson Wampoa Group, and it was listed in the year of 2000. I was there for five years um, in an operating role. And after that, I was part of a team that started a private equity firm, Luna Capital. And Luna Capital invests in privately owned Chinese consumer businesses. And it was while my time at Luna Capital that the idea of starting Xingtai Capital came about. I started Xingtai Capital over five years ago. And I, we've been now have a five-year track record. And we run a long-only strategy investing in Chinese growth equities. Uh, I'm the founder, and I have a partner who is a CIO, and his name is Bing Chao Zhao, and he's from China, from Zhejiang province. So the whole thesis of what we do is, Xingtai um, Capital, we're a value-driven investor in growth. So what we try to do is capture the highest growth in the stocks that we pick, whilst paying a lot of attention to valuations we pay for that growth, and being very focused on the margin of safety. Uh, we, we like to do all, most of the research ourselves. Uh, so we, we really take a more of a private equity-like approach to investing in public equities. Uh, we do our own challenge checks. We put a lot of focus on frequent and in-depth management dialogue. And so we use what we learn from management and what we see on the ground through channel checks to build our financial models that yields uh, our investment thesis. So the fact that we're on the ground in Shanghai is a really critical part to what we do. And then help me understand, coming from the U.S., it seems that all of China is a growth stock compared with, right, compared with U.S. growth and value. So how do you right, delineate right. what are the boundaries for growth versus value in, in Chinese equities? Right. Um, so if you look at uh, the MSCI China, uh, we have very little... Uh, overlap with the MSCI China. I think our top 10 positions represents like 0.6% of the MSCI China. So the MSCI China has all kinds of exposure. It has exposure into consumer and growth stocks, which include technology, healthcare, e-commerce, etc. But it also has exposure into financials, commodities, energy companies, etc. Um, we are only looking at the growth and consumer end of the MSCI China. So if you will, um, we take a very broad uh, interpretation of what we think is consumer driven and what we consider growth. 
but we would not invest in a state-owned enterprise industrial or a large bank or a commodities okay. company. So we try and stay away from the state-owned enterprises. We try and stay away from um, the large industrials and financials and commodity companies. Everything else is really in our, in our universe. And so are there some, what are some of the names that would be included in that universe that people would know? So Any Tuna Unis would be, would be definitely the names that you would know well, which is Alibaba and Tencent. Uh, okay. We in general are not invested in a lot of the consensus names, but those names would be in our universe. So what, what, the way we look at growth is we try to capture growth that we, where we think that um, in a China context for us, growth means everything that is somehow related to the consumer. You know, we think that the economy is now restructuring into a consumer and domestic demand-led type of uh, economy. And we believe that growth in the next few decades in China will be driven by um, Chinese consumption. So what we try to look at is, we try to look at what the underlying driver of growth is in a company. And we, if we deem it to be driven by consumption, we will think, we will consider that stock to be in our universe. It's very interesting because a lot of people don't realize that even though China is a you know, second largest economy in the world and will be soon the largest consumer market in the world, uh, it is a very young uh, economy in terms of the consumer economy. I mean, it yeah. is just 30 years old. Most of the stocks we cover uh, were listed, some the early ones listed around between the year 2000 and 2005, but a lot of them were listed um, from 2005 to today. So a lot of stocks we cover are quite newly listed. And overall, the way the consumer economy has evolved is that China did a, a great job building the consumer infrastructure in the early days. So we have you know, great infrastructure in terms of an e-commerce backbone, in terms of distribution channels to distribute products. And what we're seeing now is a lot more product coming online that are filtering through these, these um, through, filtering through the infrastructure. Right, so that's a very classic example. So that, that brand actually is one of the earliest consumer companies in China that was, it was founded in the 70s. And that brand's gone through evolution over time. So, you know, everyone growing up in, the, in China in the 70s and 80s knew this brand Bozidang because that was the, the main brand in terms of if you want to buy a down jacket. And that brand has, the stock actually lost a lot of market value um, in around 2010 because it had uh, issues dealing with uh, inventory um, uh, channels over being overfilled. They built too much capacity for the growth that they they actually saw at that point. So they saw they thought growth would be unfettered in the, in around you know the early 2000s. So they built this huge infrastructure of distribution channels and stores, and they overbuilt and faced uh, stuffed inventories and all kinds of issues. So the stock actually lost 90% of its market value around between 2010 and 2012, uh, but then went through a restructuring. And after that restructuring um, is when we invested. So we saw that there was gonna be a recovery coming online and we invested at a very cheap multiple around 10 times because we thought that growth would recover to 30% plus per annum in terms of earnings growth. Um, so that's a very good case uh, study for us in terms of how we capture recovery growth. But Bozidang is a, is a big consumer brand in China and 
it was a very staple type of consumer brand in terms of, you know, just a regular down jacket. And it's actually involved into quite a premium uh, consumption type of positioning. So they now have multiple types of, types of price points. They're quite fashion conscious. It's a very different company than it was over the last 20 years. Yeah, the model in your showing off her uh, sleeveless down jacket in your deck doesn't look very, uh, that looks pretty no, fashionable. No, no. So uh, what people associate with the old Bozzy Down was just a regular plain down jacket. And now they do ski wear, they do fashion items, and they have many different price points. So how deep will you dive into that company? So it's, you're betting on the recovery just of that company? Or was it in the broader upmarket as well? In that case, it was just in the company. So the way we like to capture growth is we, we like to capture two types of growth. We like secular growth, which is blue sky scenario, you know, newly listed company or sector where they're just seeing five, 10 years of, of limited competition and, and very strong growth. We also like to focus on, so Alibaba, when it was first listed, is an example yeah. of secular growth. Right? Yeah. We also like to focus on recovery growth because a lot of consumer companies in China have gone through cycles we've seen over the last 10 years where they were once a high flyer, but then like Bozidang lost 90% of their market value, trading at very cheap multiples. Um, and we like, to be, we like to capture value dislocation. So we really like companies like Bozidang where we can invest it 10 times and we can see very strong recovery coming back online uh, before the market. So another thing we like to do is we like to invest quite early. If you look at sort of our top positions and positions that have generated the most alpha for us over the last five years, in general, it's in stocks where we were very early. And what, what we mean by early is when we invested, there was limited or no sell side research coverage and where we're one of the few or earlier in, in institutional investors. So in Brazilian, obviously, Brazilian was a huge it was a large cap company, lost 90% of the market value. When we invested at 10 times, when it was a small cap company, no one was talking about Bozidang because everyone had written Bozidang off because it lost so much market value. We, what we did in, in the case of Bozidang is we went in, we had in-depth discussions with, with management, and we did our own channel checks. We talked to their distribution channels, and our hypothesis was that we saw same sort cell recovery in multiple provinces, and we projected that they would have a very strong recovery. The market didn't agree with us in the case of Bozidang. We invested in 2016 at 10 times and the stock was flatline for 24 months. So, you know, it didn't lose value, but we invested 10 times. It was a flatline. Yeah. After 18 months to two year period, the market then recognized that growth was very strong and had gone through this huge recovery. And the stocks after that went through, you know, a 200% growth between 2018 and today. Great. And so, so that, and that's it. Yeah. So just what does it look like now for your exit? So how do you monetize that? Is there, uh, do you have formulas for that? Or it's just, a, again, checks and feels for when it might turn over? Right. So, so with fundamentals, bottoms up investor, we, we rank everything in terms of risk reward. So we're very, we, we usually take profit when the risk reward no longer makes sense for us or it's past our, our um, projections where we think it's fully valued and we think that it doesn't make sense anymore. Or if we see other stocks in the portfolio or pipeline that represent better risk reward, we will then trim um, the existing position to replace it with 
other stocks that represent better value for us. So in the case of Bozidang, um, our thesis is that the stock is still attractively valued. Um, it's at 15 times earnings today. Uh, we still see very strong growth over the next two years. So we're still holding a, a high conviction position in Bozidang. Uh, but we have other examples where you know, we invested, the stock saw very strong growth. We, we invested in another stock. It's a hot pot food condiment stock. It's called Yihai. Uh, that stock was one of our best performing stocks in our portfolio over the past five years. Uh, we made like 12x on that stock. We invested at 10, 11 times earnings in 2017, and we sold the stock um, in 2019, two years later, because at that point the stock was valued at 30 time, 35 times earnings, and we felt the risk reward no longer made sense. And we had other positions in the book and other ideas in the pipeline that were more attractive. And that's just like a uh, ramen noodle kind of thing? Uh, off that's the shelf. Actually, it's actually, um, hot pot is a cuisine that is very popular in China. It's 25% yeah, yeah. of the dining industry in China. So it's a, it's a it's huge hot, hot and it, you know, it's basically a- But a this was it, do it from home? Take it home? This is, the, the con this is the key condiment. It's like the ketchup to hamburgers. Oh, got it, is okay. what this guy is. So this is like the key con component, the key condiment that you need to eat the hot pot cuisine. Because a hot pot is just a boiling pot of water where you boil food. So the whole the, the condiment, the sauce, is a main yeah, yeah. ingredient. So this, I love, this is the I love these yeah. kind of stories, right? Like people are, you read papers and read news articles about someone caught 10 cent and this and that when there's real money to be made in the boring stuff like like hot pot condiments, right? That's, that's great. Right. And so it seems to me you're saying like you're you're trying to capture these growth stocks, but at value prices a lot of a lot of the time. Correct. We're a value investing growth, which a lot of people say, well, everyone wants to be that. Everyone wants to do that. Right. Uh, but the you, fact you might is wait we, thirty years to get the right opportunity or whatnot. But yeah. So you know, we we look for value dislocations. Those dislocations will kind of come in stocks like Bozidang that have gone through correction and are about to recover, or they will come in opportunities where the market is either overlooked, ignored, or misunderstood a stock. So for example, in the case of Yihai, the market overlooked and misunderstood this stock because it was, it, was, it was IPO'd shortly before we bought the stock. The IPO was not successful and the stock corrected right after IPO. And that's when we invested. But and the market much, was, sorry, yeah. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, how much pain will you take on if you're, right, if you got in early and it's still going right. down, will you, Take that's a very good question. Yeah, that's a very good question. That that's the that's the the tricky part about the recovery growth stocks that we invest in. So timing is really critical. Um, we will re usually wait for anywhere from three to five quarters of recovery before we invest. So we won't invest after one quarter of recovery. Um, but you know, oftentimes we're early. So in the case of Bozidang, we were early. Not that stock didn't do anything for 18 to 24 months after we invested. And in some cases, like you say, we invest and we're facing this falling knife situation where the stock keeps correcting. Um, we've had those situations early on in our, in our five-year track record. We had a few of those cases in the first two years of our track record. Um, and in some cases, if we hit a stop loss, and we felt that we had no information edge and understanding why the stock kept correcting, we would at time, you know, we would consider trimming the stock in, in half or, or, or taking, pro, you know, taking some risk off the table. So, so 
we actually manage a portfolio. You know, we're a long-only manager, fundamental, long-term driven. We like to hold stock for three plus years. Uh, all our models are done on a three-year basis. Um, the turnover, the portfolio, uh, in terms of name turnover, is low. It's around 30%. Uh, volume turnover is higher, is 50% plus, because we actively manage the exposure we're in. So China, like you said, is a great, great growth uh, story. And, you know, um, but at the same time, it's a very volatile market. So, so the growth dynamics and the competitive dynamics within each sector, within each company can change very rapidly. So, so you can't afford to not be very focused on constant information updates. So the portfolio's positions in our book, we talk to the companies every month. And then I'm reading all this news on like luck and coffee. Is that how I say it? So yeah. how, do you, how do you avoid those landmines, so to speak? How do you avoid those traps? Right. Um, so a couple of things. So you know, obviously corporate governance is a big issue and we're, we're, we're very focused on it. Um, we tend to only invest in companies where uh, we have some assessment of management track record. So we either know management or we know how management has guided and performed in the past, or we have reference checked them versus other peer companies or other uh, people we know in our, in our network. So we would rarely invest in a company where we don't feel comfortable with management credibility and management um, track record. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that we never invest in companies that don't have positive earnings and don't have some kind of history of earnings. So, yeah. so that's, that's the second point. We don't invest in companies that are newly listed and overnight have this huge market cap but don't actually deliver earnings. That's not, that's not in our focus area. Um, we like to understand the driver of earnings and sales and be able to verify it. So in a case like the company you mentioned, um, because of the rapid growth, because of the network of reps that they're relying on to, to, to drive sales, it would be very difficult to diligence, you know, where the growth is and how, how, how that growth actually happened. So that right. would be something we would, we would stay away from. Good to hear. I think U.S. investors read that, right, in the papers, and they say, like, this is why I don't want to invest over there. You can't tell these things apart. You're going to run into these, but you're well, saying, I don't like, think that's the case. I don't think that's yeah. the case, because, you, know, you know, if you look at, you know, what we look at in companies is clearly we look for high growth. Clearly we look for, you know, comparison market positioning, but we also focus on a couple other things. You know, we like companies that are in net cash with limited uh, leverage on their books. We like companies with a historical track record of earnings. Uh, we like companies where we have active and accessible management, where we you know, management is willing to talk to us every month. So if a company doesn't fit into that type of profile, we will likely pass on, on investing in the company. Yeah, and I think some investors would say, well, how do I trust those numbers? So I guess, you know, what's, how do you guys trust the numbers? Because you're doing channel checks and you're seeing the actual, the brand and the feeling it. Correct, correct. So if we're looking at an infant milk formula company, we will go to channels, we'll go to the stores, we'll go to the hypermarkets, we'll go online and we'll see if what the shelf space is like, does the sales and the branding look like they're generating the sales they are. And we'll talk to peer companies, we'll, we'll reference check with peer companies to see what the competitive positioning of the company actually is. One more question on the RIT. So in your deck, you kind of talk about strong downside protection, which you just mentioned. But you also just mentioned, but there's no hedge, there's no 
overlay that's just based purely on the skill and picking the companies? Correct. So all the alpha we generated is just from stock picking. Uh, we, we have not, we have no, it's a, it's a, pure, it's a straightforward long only strategy. But the downside protection is based on also not chasing high performers and so we're not in high beta names. We're not in highly valued names. So, you know, we're not in the consensus names that would trade according to the, the market beta. So quite, and we're in names that are very cheap, right? Average is, uh, PEs are 13 times. Yeah. So in a, in a down market, we often see that we are not tracking the, that, the beta and we are capturing you know, less than half of the, of the downdraft. That's great. So let's finish it up here. We finished up asking you some of your favorite things, which is our standard. So okay. uh, we'll just go through these quick. Favorite investing book. Favorite investing book. I guess Intelligent Investor as, okay. as a value investor. Yep. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, favorite restaurant in Hong Kong. Where do I got to go when I come visit? Wow. Okay, that's a tough one. I have so many. So, um, I would say a good classic is uh, China Club. China Club, okay. Yeah. Uh, are you a podcast consumer as well as now a contributor? Will you have a favorite podcast? I'm not a big pod podcast uh, consumer, but I like the um, I like the McKinsey podcasts. Okay, I haven't read that one yeah. or read it, listened to it. Sorry. Um, how about your favorite place you've lived in all the uh, different areas you've been? I would say Hong Kong. Okay, Hong Kong. Who's, who's second place? Where were you when you were in the US, in New York? I was in New York, I, I love New York as well. New York or London, but, all right. And then finally, I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan or have watched the movies, but favorite Star Wars character? Not a Star Wars fan. Not sorry. at all? <laughs> about Princess Leia, have you heard of her? Right, yes, Princess Leia, yeah. All right, that we'll, would be, we'll give yes. you Princess Leia. Well, yep. thanks so much, Michelle. This has been fun and informative Thank and uh, looking forward to talking again soon. Today, we'll be joined by Allison Zhao, who is the head of business development for AP Capital Management. Uh, we are going to be talking with Allison a little bit today about their absolute return fund. The principal investment objective of AP Capital's Absolute Return Fund is to consistently achieve a net positive return with, with little directional exposure and low correlation to the equity markets. The fund also targets a low risk and volatility uh, profile versus other industry competitors. Uh, Allison, thank you for joining us today. We're happy to have you on uh, The Derivative. So as head of business development at AP Capital, can you give us a little bit background on your path and what led you to AP Capital? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so as you mentioned before, I actually started off at um, um, the finance department of City of Chicago, where I was uh, reporting to uh, the mayor's office, uh, you know, soliciting revenue numbers and uh, analyzing financial reports for different industries and et cetera. Um, and then later after uh, working in the uh, city of Chicago, I joined Wells Fargo uh, on the FICC derivatives trading floor. So I was rotating on both trading and sales. Um, later I joined a Swiss uh, boutique investment bank um, where I focused on cross asset structured product sales and trading. 
So, um, but then, you know, what, my past experience were all on the South side. Um, uh, it's more client driven. Um, um, it's more product driven, I would say. Um, and then the founder of AP Capital, Patrick Seal, uh, one day reached out to me and said, hey, I actually appreciate your background in uh, the investment banking side. And also you have already have the foundation on the financial instruments, derivatives, and et cetera. Uh, would you like to join us um, to help us expand our business, et cetera? I think the most important reason, well, there are several uh, key reasons why I joined AP. Um, first of all is definitely um, the culture. Um, we have a very, very flat culture. Um, Patrick, as the founder, he tried to decentralize, have a very decentralized uh, company structure. Um, so where we, every one of us have a say, <clears throat> have the autonomy and et cetera. Um, and the second of all is definitely for the challenge and the responsibilities. I myself will be um, covering the, basically the, uh, uh, the external relationship part for the company, either relationship with you know, ETF issuers, with exchanges, with allocators, with media and et cetera. That's tremendous responsibility. And I'm super excited for the challenge and that's the reason I, I joined AP Capital. And uh, so far, I've been having a ball. Let's get more granular into the strategy in terms of focusing on the absolute return fund. Yeah, sure. Um, so we first started doing AHR, uh, namely the arbitrage between Hong Kong and uh, uh, China onshore markets. And then uh, later on, we realized that, you know, um, there's not when opportunity, it's all very opportunity driven. Uh, because of the policies in mainland China and et cetera. So we shifted to commodity futures trading in 2015, and we're also trading ETF options. And then uh, in 2016, we have, um, we onboarded uh, Goldman as our uh, uh, prime broker, then obviously we have more accessibilities because we have this partnership with them. And we also opened uh, our Shenzhen office in 2016. Um, so our new strategy developed in that time is actually basket trading and futures arbitrage. And we also got some new investors from family offices and high net worth, high net worth individuals. So at that, uh, time, at that time, it's still mostly China markets like China ETFs, China futures, or you're starting to move global as well? Uh, but back then, it was still pretty focused on AH. Okay. okay. Yeah. But, that is, but we are, we, but, uh, the seeds of expanding to multiple markets globally, it's already embedded um, in that period of time. And then in 2017 is where we started to trade ADR and also the pair, the pair tradings. And also we become, became a exchange, Hong Kong exchange member that year and which started, prepared us to be a ETF market maker in the next year. So in 2009, 2018, we started to trade ETF market. Uh, we started to do uh, ETF market making in Hong Kong locally, and the top ETFs you may probably heard of, you know, the three uh, CSI 300. Um, the ticker is uh, 3188 or 2822 or 2823. So those are the most uh, liquid and commonly you're traded not, ETFs. You're not giving out your telephone number here, are you? <laughs> So that's, that, that's the ticker for the CSI 300 ETF, is that right? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, all right. 
those are the most liquid ones, the top ones in Hong Kong. Um, and in 2000, uh, 2019, actually the end of 2018, we started, we realized that, you know, CMA, CME is actually launching um, Bitcoin futures. And that got our attention we, because we figured that, you know, maybe this crypto trading things will be more, in, more and more institutionalized. It's not like a, a game anymore. It becomes it's seriously becoming a new asset class. So that got our attention. And so um, at the beginning of 2018, especially in the beginning of 2019, we started to trade crypto, um, crypto strategies. And how we trade cryptos is that we don't really hold any directional positions as well, just like our main strategy, right? We are actually doing cross-market arbitrage or spot and future arbitrage of future calendar spreads and et cetera. So the methodology of trading crypto is, based, is more or less the same as our main strategy. It's just uh, uh, to, a different, uh, to a different asset class. Do you track internally over this five or six year period where the returns and risk management has been great, uh, where the alpha is coming from based on different sub strategies, like in different years, I'm imagining there's greater risk in market neutral or calendar spreads or ETF arbitrage versus others. Do you guys track you know, where the risks lie and where the alpha is coming from year over year. I know that's very like detailed, but can you touch on that perhaps? For sure. Um, I think it's a very good question, first of all, and um, it really depends on the market conditions. Um, maybe I can take uh, this year, uh, 2020, the first five months as example, maybe. Um, so, we have four main strategies in our uh, fund. Um, first of all is index ARP. Secondly is uh, ETF market making. Thirdly is Paris trading. And uh, the last one is actually crypto trading. So that, that those are the main categories of our strategies. We, uh, of course, we have some other strategies, but uh, these four are the main the ones. Core, right, the core. Uh, yes. So yes, the core four. Um, and so, in the, Q, in the first five months of 2020, what we're seeing that is providing us the alpha is actually the um, all you ETFs and cryptos. Um, there, as everybody knows, right, there was uh, the all you price went crazy and uh, um, there's a lot of volatility there. So we were um, actually trading a lot of all you uh, ETFs and also futures. So we're trying to uh, make some profit there. When and also you, Just curious, sorry to cut you off. When you were trading oil futures, are you trading on the INE in China? Are you trading on, uh, you know, are you trading Brent oil? Are you trading WTI? Like what oil are you trading? We're trading all of them. <laughs> all of them, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're trading, we're trading uh, definitely international products like INE all of you and also crude oil you and Brent. Um, and WWTI. Uh, so all of the above. Uh, Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also cryptos because the um, the big movement. It's basically crypto. It's a reflection of the uh, volatilities in the um, in the stock markets or in the currency markets on the gold markets, etc. So and um, you know one thing special about cryptos is that it has different regulations in different markets. 
So even just for uh, the same kind of uh, currency, you can have um, drastically different volatilities or prices in different markets. And since we uh, paid a lot of effort to expand our, our, our horizons to those different markets before um, 2020, um, so now we're able to capture that uh, movement in different markets. You had touched on very briefly about, you know, AP, um, AP Capital's edge. If you could elaborate more in terms, I think one differentiator, if you will, that sets you apart from your peers is the IT infrastructure and the internal platform. Can you provide a little bit more color there? Sure, for sure. Um, I think there are three um, aspects that differentiate ourselves from others. Um, first of all, I think it's the market accessibility. Um, by that, I mean, um, I mean, let's just be honest. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, HFT um, tycoons. There's a lot of uh, HFT trading houses like Jane Street or IMC, you know, um, or Flow or Optiver. They have great IT or infrastructures that we, as a smaller hedge fund, we cannot compete with. But our unique edge is really the market coverage and the market accessibility because those big firms, they don't actually go there to compete with us. Mm -hmm. um, I Maybe it's, you know, it's uh, the cost and return is not appealing to them, but for us, certainly, I think it's, um, it's uh, pretty attractive. And also we have um, spent tremendous efforts in those emerging markets and try to understand the local uh, policies, the local economies and the local brokerage relationships and et cetera. And we have hired uh, trading traders who have been trading that market for many years to, to uh, onboard as our part of our trading team. So you, you could see that it's a one plus one uh, larger than two effect. Um, and that's certainly one of our uh, big edge is the market accessibility and the market expertise. Um, the second one, as you mentioned, is our IT. Uh, we got that 100% internally developed. And the, the beauty of this is that we can not only integrate, integrate the risk management uh, uh, system into the IT system, into the trading system, but also we're able to have very tailor-made trading functions or connectivities with um, us, uh, brokers or exchanges. And that certainly gives us more uh, flexibility and more uh, tailor-made solutions for the fellow tra traders. Um, and that's second. The third one is actually the trading team. And right. all of the traders are experienced traders. Uh, we seldom hire uh, uh, junior traders, uh, fresh graduates. Um, we want the traders be very, very um, focused and specialized in their area. Uh, so that's, and in, in return, what, uh, what, what we can get in return is that, you know, the traders are pretty happy because they're trading what they're good at. And right. also uh, we can, very obviously see that our traders have more uh, have better instinctions or or intuitions when trading in that market uh, for example a big breaking news happens and what's that knee-jerk reaction is what's valuable what do yes. you find as a benefit or maybe the difference between trading asia 
um, versus trading the U.S. and like what should investors know on how the the market landscape differs mm. um, from an investment standpoint. Granted, they're hiring you to figure you know those individual nuances out. Yeah, sure. Um, I think one the the biggest differentiator between those two markets is that U.S. is the most liquid, the most developed financial markets. Um, you have a lot, uh, tremendous liquidity there, and usually people need to trade in very, very big size to for us to to actually uh, capture some uh, average charge opportunities and etc. But whereas in Asia, uh, it's more policy or opportunities driven. Um, cycles can be shorter than um, the U.S. markets. Uh, the U.S. market. Like for example, um, taking Chi Chinese onshore market as an example, um, the cycles are are short and things can be pretty political driven. So you need to stay tuned with the government policies, and uh, you know maybe sometimes even you have to read the the official government documents to anticipate what kind of uh, new strategies will be launched. Uh, during type of period or what kind of new products will be launched. Um, so that's very, I think that's a very uh, unique uh, thing of trading in uh, the Chinese markets. And also, but we are seeing that um, one thing that also differs is that the growth um, in Asian markets is actually pretty rapid. Um, there's countless new product launch, new ETFs, uh, new th uh, thematic products, um, you know, 5G or Big Bay Area or Vietnam or uh, Vietnam et uh, new economy, China new economy, etc. So there's a lot of new product launch, um, and with the major ETFs trading with very very high uh, liquidity, and also you have this new ideas coming in to uh, make the whole overall market more. Uh, energetic or or, or um, adventurous, so I think there's a lot of uh, growth potentials um, in Asian markets overall speaking. So, help me understand. Like, you've seen massive movement up and down in some of the Chinese commodities year to date, and you know volatility. But you've seen several markets move, you know, thirty, forty percent year to date with what's going on with uh, the political turmoil and Corona, the inputs for you guys, is it more um, fundamental or technical? Like how are you, you had mentioned just in passing about, you know, looking at reports and government data and stuff that leads me to believe that you have, you know, a fundamental approach. Is that, is that the right assumption? Is oh. it a combination oh. fundamental and technical or? Um, I think uh, it's more of the pre um, previously I mentioned, you know, policies and uh, the new launches and cetera. It's more on um, the overall expansion or the overall strategies or the environments and etc. But then for our strategies, we actually trade. We actually have very short holding periods. Um, usually, it's uh, uh, around one to three days. So you can imagine we trade in, trade out pretty fast. And for the commodities, you know, there's a, a, a lot of swings in the past uh, days. And what we're trading is more on the future side, the commodity future side, where we're actually trading a lot of future uh, future spreads, the rows, 
um, and um, there's a lot of futures we're trading at discounts, and uh, we were able to catch capture that you know the differences and uh, um, make money in the raw markets. Um, so that's actually how we treat it. We try to shorten our holding period so that to make sure the volatility in our own P&L profile, um, it's, it's stable. Uh, but sense. then also, yeah, stay tuned of the overall um, economics or policies. Um, it's definitely beneficial. Yeah. So a couple questions here, Allison. Uh, yeah. Your favorite investing book? My favorite investing book? Uh, random walk on the Wall Street. Favorite place to vacation? Uh, for, uh, Canada. Canada, I Vancouver. That. I didn't yeah, see Vancouver. that coming. Uh, because my husband is Canadian, so. <laughs> uh, what do you miss the most about Chicago? Is it the Chicago Bulls? Deep dish pizza. Deep dish pizza. Today, we've got a young star in the energy trading space, Brent Belote, founder of Kaler Capital. Uh, Brent joined us a while back on the pod to talk through U.S. oil prices going negative for the first time ever, and excited to hear his thoughts on how he's approaching the Chinese oil futures markets. So thanks for being back on with us today, Brent. Thanks, Jeff. It's been good. And so give us a little background on you, uh, how you got into energy space and uh, sure. where you grew up and everything. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, in Petaluma, small town. Uh, went to school down in LA at USC and um, got into the energy markets. Uh, I went, did grad school at NYU, did my MBA in quantitative finance and econ, and then uh, got recruited to JP Morgan, um, where I worked on the oil desk for uh, 10 years. So I, at first I was in charge of North American oil fundamentals, um, running kind of supply demand balances on anything in North American crude, looking at crude grades, pretty much anything that moved oil around the, the North American area, um, we tracked. Um, and then switched over and worked on oil product derivatives, focusing on gasoline and heating oil for uh, the last two years of my career at JP Morgan. And in that, in that regard, I spent a lot of time looking at refinery economics, um, jet fuel hedging strategies, pretty much anything that moved now, gasoline and heating oil in demand. Now let's talk a little bit about the main strategy that you run yeah. in the US and, and what that looks like. What, what sure. are you doing? So Kaler uh, Capital Systematic Energy Diversified is the primary strategy that we run here in the States. Um, it takes all the fundamental data points that I aggregated and uh, built up at JP Morgan, and we uh, apply a systematic approach to fundamental data. So we look at all the supply and demand micro markets of um, of the world, we're looking at basically six primary ones, WTI, Brent, WTI, Brent differential, gasoline cracks, heating oil cracks, and then a uh, option model as well on WTI. And we look at the underlying fundamentals of those markets, um, looking at supply demand. So on the supply side, I'm looking at uh, shale forecast, shale current production, um, and the movement of oil around the world as well. So imports, exports out of the Gulf Coast, um, pipeline flows around Cushing, Oklahoma, refinery economics, um, how much gasoline, heating oil, et cetera, is being created around the world, and um, uh, shipping movements as well, a lot, of, a lot of primarily around the Middle East. So you take in all these fundamental factors, create a supply-demand picture for your, yep. through those data points, through that model, 
and then discretionarily make the decisions or the model itself kicks out the buys and sells? Yeah, the model kicks out buys and sells. It's an end of day model. So at the end of the day is when we will, um, when we will execute or enter or exit trades. And yes, the inputs are all fundamental database. Um, it tells us where along the curve we should be. Should we be in the front of the market? Should we be farther out? And dynamically adjust for kind of increases and decreases in volatility. So obviously, you know, we had a great March, April, but it was very volatile, even if it was positive volatility. So uh, right now the model is investing in December futures contracts, nothing in the front of the month to try to tamper the volatility and really stay out of the noise of the macro environment. Let's talk China. So yeah. uh, interested in your strategy. So now once you learned about the opportunity in China, were you saying, cool, I'll just port this same model over or, or what did that look like? And no, so it's, um, it was kind of an interesting, interesting transition. Um, so the way, the model works here in the States is it inputs all the fundamental data and obviously getting fundamental data in China is probably a non-starter, uh, especially with all the, you know, I trade 13 products kind of across a macro. So my, my question, and when I started looking at the data was, is can I run the last leg of the algorithm that I run here in the States and see if it has relevance across China markets. And that data looks at, um, spot prices and the term structure that has is currently going on between there. So, you know, when I ran the data, it really kind of popped and I was, I was actually surprised at how well the term model algorithm that I run as the, kind of the last hurdle for entering in, into positions worked for China. Um, and it was a, a, it's been working fantastic since we started launching, uh, since we launched in early March. And uh, so we run 13 markets, um, kind of a gamut of financial, ag and glass, um, no energy, ironically, um, but the metals have done, done fantastic. So it's interesting to see how this, how this model has performed across different asset classes. So you're taking the same energy market inputs and then are you just saying you just took the curve model and put it on the Yeah, side? so like I said, so I took the last, the last portion of it, which is um, looking at term structure. So it looks at different the spreads between different different parts of the curve okay. and, and so um, analyzes left, those first first for best ones. Yeah, left the other fundamental factors behind. Yep. And so, what does that look like? Have you thought of stage two of actually getting some of that fundamental data and running? Yeah, I've looked at it. Um, the biggest issue that I'm running into is um, is timely data. Number one, and then number two, trying to audit it or have an idea of what I'm actually looking at. Um, it's, it's tough. It's tough yeah, to, it's, it's tough to dig to through it. Yeah, it's tough. So I, I think I, I think that it, it is possible, but I think it would involve probably a full-time Chinese analyst or someone over there to scope the data and make sure that it's actually, um, you know, to, to scrape it and dig in and make sure that I'm not just, to be honest, running fake numbers um, and trying to take positions on it. Yeah. And so how have you found the, the trading as liquid as you thought, less liquid, more liquid? More liquid than I thought. Very surprised. Um, I think they did something really smart with that where the futures contracts are very small for a lot of the markets. And I think it's smart to start that way. Um, you know, whether you click a button for a thousand or you click a button for 10, it's pretty much the same thing. And um, it doesn't price people out. So it's encouraged. It's been encouraging to see the number of contracts that have actually been trading. And uh, the, algorithms, the algorithms that, that are run um, look and they only trade the most liquid futures contract um, to avoid this. So, you know, we tried to 
tried to stay out of the fray and not end up with a situation where the, the bid ask is so wide that we're causing issues um, with it. So. And what, so let's name, go through those markets again. So it's, what are the 14? Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah. 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 Um, five of them. Yeah. Uh, the 10 year gold, uh, Chinese 10 year gold, silver, cotton, um, polypropylene, hot rolled coils, um, rebar, yeah, soybeans. I just love the names of some of these, right? Did you ever think three years ago you'd be trading hot rolled? World coil and <laughs> no no or a rebar for that matter no it's uh it was in yeah like i said it was it was interesting to see where you know i my first way i ran this was I, I took each individual model each individual market and i ran the um you know kind of my inputs for this algorithm on it and i looked at them on an individual basis so these 13 were the ones where it really worked and there was some that it didn't and i was surprised that for the energy space it didn't um, I think the reason it didn't for the energy space in China was just purely um, liquidity and lack of data. So I don't think it went back far enough. And I think the liquidity factor meant that, you know, the curve, you know, if you're looking at the term structure of the curve, if only the front two months really update or change, change and the back of the curve is static for four or five days, um, yeah. is that really static or did it, they just not update the data? So I think it was more a function of just kind of stale data. And I think if you, if you dug into it and as they get more liquid, you'll find that it'll, it'll we'll probably add markets. These 13 kind of have the most, the fullest curves of the markets over there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I tried to stay in the front six months and they had to be a certain threshold of liquidity and they had to have a certain um, like term structure and, and, and bent them. And so just give some example trades. So you'll go long the June rebar and short the D rebar is kind of. No, no spread. So it's only directional. So these markets are only directional. So we'll, we'll be long or short um, a given number of contracts in each of the 13 markets. But not always in the front month. You might go into the back month. We will only go in the most liquid contract based on open interest. Okay. Which is typically the one of the first two. Typically, yeah, I, yeah. Some of them trade in. It's it's kind of fascinating because some of them trade in not almost quarterly increments, where you know gold will be like a June, September, December, and some will be six months rollouts to the next liquid contract. Um, like copper goes from June to December, I believe, pretty much every every time. So it's been interesting to see that how the rolls occur and, and where they are. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us. We're gonna do a couple quick fire favorites questions to close out. Favorite investing book? That's a good one. Um, or I'll give you any book. Uh, investing, I'll, I'll, I'll go with uh, Jesse Livermore. Um, I think yeah. it's about a plunge. Reminiscent of a stock. Reminiscent operator. of stock. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It kind of made me think about how, um, you know, how and when you should be buying and, and trying to spot that. And then uh, the um, Nassim Taleb wrote um, one is Dynamic dynamic option hedging. It's a very technical book, yeah. but um, it's been very prescient and very nice. And I've used it a, plot, a number of different, um, a number of different markets. It's right. more about, it's more about option pricing and option models, but it's been, been fascinating. Favorite uh, national park near you there, Grand Teton or Yellowstone? I like Grand Teton. It's just close. It's easy. There's great lakes there. Um, Yellowstone's beautiful. It's a little crowded. Um, yeah, and it's it's a little far. So yeah, I, Grand Teton for sure for me. Got it. And then favorite Star Wars character? 
<laughs> that's a good one um i am a star wars fan i the new ones i haven't i haven't really appreciated the new ones so um i'm gonna i'll stick with luke skywalker just be a very vanilla vanilla win yeah. episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmalt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.